John 17, uh, finishing particularly where we began last week, John 17, 20 through 26. John 17, 20 to 26. And as you turn there, remember I've used the analogy with you that this is um, some pretty thick grass. You know, like one pass of the lawnmower through this thing uh, would be kind of rough. It's thick on two reasons. On account of the text itself, there's a lot of just very careful language that we're not all that familiar with. And I think it's thick for another reason. It's because it's so meaningful. It's so important to us. And so we do one more pass at this today, reviewing some of what we covered last week, jumping into uh, the rest of the verses as well. So in light of that, I'm going to read the entire passage, John 17, 20 to 26. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me, loved them, excuse me, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Earlier we sang about how good it is to be in the family of God. We, we know and have tasted at times, sometimes more than others, that blessing of belonging. It's a beautiful thing. And so I'd ask you, even as we jump back into this text today, when and where do you feel most at one with others? When and where do you feel most at one with others? You don't have to answer church. I think... It is something that we should experience at church, but there's other places where we experience this oneness, this connection, this fraternity, like we're on the same page, same paragraph, same line. We're we're, we're in agreement with one another, like we're walking down the same road, like we just feel that camaraderie, that, that closeness. I would have you think of that because That is exactly what Jesus is praying for here. This isn't a mere theoretical oneness. Like, hey, just know that all of you belong to Jesus in some metaphysical way, but it's not something that you actually enjoy. It's supposed to be like a real camaraderie. 
I was talking with someone about that this week. They said, I've really appreciated the emphasis on the message last week, but I really didn't know what you meant by oneness. And I'm like, well, you're right. I never really explained that, did I? <laughs> oneness not just being positional, but practical. You know those times. Like maybe it was a team that, that you like, were fighting for, some kind of big win, or you knew what it was like to be involved in some kind of community service deal, or maybe it was getting a business off the ground and things were going great. Like what Jesus is praying for here is actually an experiential oneness, like a true sense of camaraderie and belonging and community. And so we concluded last week by saying that, hey, Jesus is praying for a oneness that witnesses of the, the love of the Father. And the question would be, are we entering into that? Are we enjoying that? And can we see that enhanced? That's my heart in, in the remainder of this <laughs> Um, you can trust me here. I, I'm, not, I'm, not trying to, I'm not trying to impress. I'm not trying to guilt. My hope is that every one of us would be able to do one of the three things that we concluded with last week. That is either, A, or one, enjoy this type of oneness if we've never enjoyed it before. It always seems out of reach and you've never had it. We're praying that the Word of God would bring that. Second, not just experience it, but actually enjoy it. Maybe you already have it and you see pieces of it, but like you don't understand, like, if you do have it, why does it seem like I don't have it? <laughs> like, you know, like, I believe in Jesus, I've trusted in Him, I've tried to do everything I know to do, but it just, like, the experience isn't actually there. I've entered in by faith, but something's not, like, resonating with the feelings. That's category two. And then category three is enhancing that to such a degree together that other people are like actually coming to you and asking, what is going on? <laughs> Why are you so close to those? What is going on at that church? What is going on in these relationships? And it actually is testifying of the gospel. That's the things that we long for. And we know that this is what Jesus was praying for. This is his de death, departure kind of speech. He's given them instruction, and now he's ending with intercession. And we're seeing not just his plans, but his passion. His passion is for his people. And do you remember what he's prayed for? He's prayed for himself, that he would be glorified through his death. He's prayed for those original 11, that they would be able to pass on this information in a way that would resonate with generations to follow and then he prayed for me and you, all who will believe. If there was ever a place where you could enter your name in in the Bible, if you're a believer in Jesus, this is it. And he's saying, this is what I want for you. And so he's praying for something that will be accomplished, that he's trusting his Father will give on account of his death. And we notice that there were several attributes of this oneness that witnesses to the love of the Father and the way that I think that we could better understand these attributes is just to know like what to expect. Remember, Jesus is praying for this. He's not telling you to pray for this. Jesus is securing this. He's not telling you to secure this. Like if you, if you write down these attributes of this oneness that witnesses to the world as like the checklist of the things that you need to be doing this week, you're going to totally miss the point of the sermon. That's not where we're headed. The point is, this is what he's already ordered for you. Like, the Amazon order has been put in. 
And he sent you the invoice to know what you're getting in the mail. And so when you start unboxing all that junk that just keeps showing up on your doorstep, like you know what to look out for. The oneness that witnesses, the oneness that is from Jesus is marked by these attributes. And let's just review, review them quickly and head to the next two. The first one is essential. It is essential. It's, it's part of who we are. Like it's something that he's actually already given us. There is truly divine life in us. It, it is something that, that we have. Because he gave us the Spirit, we now are alive in some invisible way. You see that in verse 20. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. Notice that. We're to be one with Jesus, just like Jesus was with the Father. The way I heard one person put it this week is that we've already been invited into the center of intertrinitarian fellowship. You're not just kind of like close to God anymore. He has enveloped you in himself. <laughs> You, you have the, the divine life in Jesus. You are united to Him, and through Him you are united to the Father. I mean, it's a beautiful thing. And what I want you to notice about this essential oneness is that it is invisible, and it is static. This is a bit different from the second one. The second one is missional oneness. That's visible and dynamic. This one is essential. It's invisible and it's static. It, like, it doesn't change. You don't have more of the life of God one day and less of the life of God another day. And it's not something that you can actually see. As much as we like to say stuff like, yeah, I could just really tell that person was a Christian. There wasn't like there was something glowing above them that gave the sign. You know, it's just they don't always look like what you think they would look like. It's something you can't see, but it's already there. So, this oneness is something that's already been achieved. It's, it's essential, but it's also supposed to be expressed, which leads to the second attribute. Do you remember that one? Missional. It's functional. It expresses itself in, in this shared commitment to making the Father known. Look at verses 22 and 23. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. What's the difference between these two? Well, this one he actually says, hey, it's supposed to be on display to the world, but notice he uses this special descriptor that it may be complete. It may be complete. There is a sense in which this works itself out like fruit works itself out of a seed. It's complete. It's, it's had its journey once it produces the fruit. He's saying that there would be a real evidence, a, a real expression of this as we display the glory that's been given to us. And so then came the question, well, what's that glory? It's not the same glory that Jesus had with the Father before the world was. It's that glory that he was given when he was going to make the Father known and entering into the human realm. It's the privilege of making him shine, of making him known. And we have been entrusted with that. 
Jesus has commissioned us as the representatives of the, th- the Father in His absence. And so now we're making Him known, and as we're committed to making Him known, we enter into that with one another, and it is such a functional thing. We actually enjoy and express this unity, not by looking at one another, but by looking at the task given us and going after it together. Paul says this in Philippians 1.27. He says, look, live worthy of the gospel. Like, be willing to suffer for the gospel. All y'all Philippians, like, get on the same page with this. And as you're going after the gospel together, remember all the kind things God has done for you. And don't think about yourselves. Uh, don't, Don't labor for your own wants or needs or desires, but have the mind of Christ and just be willing to to serve, because God glorifies that. Like for Paul, that's a good church. Everybody's going after a mission together. They're not thinking of their own needs. And in light of that, guess what? The church is united. It's a win. I am a sports fan, and I have been on multiple teams. (laughs) And I know the difference between playing a basketball game for my stats versus the team's stats. You know, you've ever seen the kid who's like complaining, oh, I didn't make that many shots this game, and man, my rebounds were bad. You know, like the team won, but he lost. As compared to the opposite where the guy thinks he won, like, man, oh yeah, I scored 27 tonight. But your team lost, and he's celebrating. <laughs> what Jesus is saying is that we have a team goal now, and that's making the Father known, and when we realize we're working for his stats, not our stats, We're going to display, like in a visible way, this unity that's going to draw the world into this relationship, and they're going to see, and I didn't hit this last week, but notice it, please, in your Bible, he says in verse 23, so that the world may know that you sent me, they're going to know that Jesus was who he said he was, and, and loved them, that you, Father, loved them even as you loved me. Wow. They're not just going to see like, oh, these folks really get along. They're going to see that they enjoy the love that the Father has always had for the Son. Like, He loves them that much. I don't know what you're going through this week, and I I joke around sometimes about not being that good at being sensitive and knowing people's needs. I apologize for that often. But I have enough common sense to know that this is worth stopping at for a second. That He loved you He loves you, even as He loved His Son. Are you ever tempted to think, oh, He just, He loves me a little bit, I know that, I mean, He sent His Son to die, but I've been pretty off this week, and so I imagine that the love is a little low. Actually, what's being put on display as we continue just to go after it together is that they're going to see that it's not just a modicum of love, a little hint of love. It is the same love with which he has loved his son in all the world. He loves you as much as he has loved his son. Like, that's a pretty powerful thing to put on display. It's essential. It's missional. And then I think we do well to recognize that it's also spatial. This brings us into our new material, verse 24. What's another attribute of the oneness that witnesses? It's spatial. S-P-A-T-I-A-L. Spatial. If it sounds strange, just look at verse 24. You'll see why I say it. 
Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Notice that Jesus is saying here that I want all these people that will believe in me to be with me where I am. Now, he's speaking proleptically. He's speaking ahead of time. Where is he right now? He's on the earth. But he knows, like, the deed is as good as done. He is going to be in what we often call heaven. And so he is saying, like, I am praying that they would be with me where I'm going to be forever. I want us all together, which that makes sense, right? Like, if you're united, if you're one, you kind of all need to be in the same space. He says, I want them all in the same space. I want them all gathered around me. And then notice what he wants them doing. This is, this is kind of stunning, like... He wants them all in the same room, if you will. But he specifically says that they may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me. Um... I don't know what you normally think of heaven as. I normally think of it, just honest, open. It's easiest for me to think of heaven as uh, the stuff that I would enjoy. Rivers, lakes, houses. Um... And yet, there's a part of this, so let's just be really honest. You're like, what? He wants them all around just staring at his glory? I mean, is there anybody else in the room who, who's willing to say, I don't know, there's something about this that doesn't seem that appealing to me. We can't know, friends, um, what this is because we're too finite, we're too small. But Jesus does have something good in store for us because he says he wants us to see the glory that had been given him because he was loved before the foundation of the world. I, remember we said glory is shining, like something standing out because it's good? There's something about Jesus, about the Son, that the Father has enjoyed for all eternity. And whatever that thing is, it, it is like, it ignites the eternal love of the Father for the Son. And as, as the Son is enjoying that love, it is further evidencing how great He is to anyone who could watch it. Now, I know we're in, in heavy territory, so let me try to make it pretty concrete for a second. I think that we understand that even on a human level, that love itself is not just glorious, but it makes glorious. Love is not just glorious, but it makes glorious. It brings out the, the best. like it, it shines the spotlight on something that's, that's already there. I, I'm thinking of of those who, who adopt a child. 
and in adopting that child and showering it with love, like you start to notice things about that were already there, but you start to notice things about that little one that no one's ever seen before. Like there's a new brilliance, there's a there's a new beauty, there's a new glow. Think about the new bride, the new husband. They thought that they loved one another. But the real glory of their love isn't seen six months into their wedding. It's seen 60 years later where there's just something more magnificent about this relationship than was ever manifest before. Jesus is saying, I I want them all to be with me and to see the glory that I have enjoyed on account of the Father's eternal love for me. I don't know if you think about that because we can't think of things apart from things. We're created. We're, we're creatures. We can only think of stuff. But like pure essence and being and enjoyment of one person in another, like it's something like worth beholding. It's something worth looking at. I'm going to be sympathetic as a man for a second. In my sympathy, I can understand why my wife and others like her enjoy watching romantic comedies and masterpiece theater. There's something truly enjoyable about a relationship enjoyed. There's just something that like you you want to see the closeness and the connection and and, and it's and it's and it's good and it, and it's right and it and it's appropriate. And what Jesus is inviting us in on is to see with our own eyes the glorious relationship, like no filters, nothing in the way, the glorious relationship that the Father and the Son have enjoyed for all eternity. And that is supposed to like delight our souls. I mean, if you think rom-coms are glorious and masterpiece theater is glorious or that mountaintops are glorious and sunsets are glorious, you've never seen a glory like this. And it will capture and enrapture you for all of eternity. The greatest glory of heaven, brothers and sisters, is not the stuff, but the sun. And so the summary is that He wants us all in the same place, enjoying the same display of glory, this eternal love that the Father has for the Son. And I think we could all just agree with this. Some things are done better together, are they not? It isn't that we all get to enter into our own private like movie theater or get our own little iPhone with our AirPods in and get to watch the glory. It's we get to do it together. Do any of you remember during COVID when like uh, Amazon and Netflix and those places like started this little feature? I just, it just showed up one day called Start a Watch Party. Does anybody even know it? It's still there. I don't know anybody that's ever used it. But the idea was, you could, because nobody could be together, you could watch a movie with your buddies, and somehow you were going to set up your camera so that you could be recorded while you're watching the movie, and they can see you watching the movie. And I'm like, how sad. (laughs) I just let it go, man. Like, just, yeah, you're not together. but all of us know what it's like to want to watch something together. There's a difference between going to your favorite concert and listening to it. 
through your headphones. Being together like enhances the experience. I don't care if it's the, the sporting event. I don't care if it's the concert. But like we want to do it together. And what Jesus is saying is I'm orchestrating something on the calendar that we get to enjoy together. And it is you being able to enjoy the forever glory that I will display on account of the love that the Father has for me. Like We're going to do it together. This is spatial. You're going to be entered, like invited into a space and it'll be the best party you've ever been a part of. It'll be like the most climactic, epic concert you could possibly imagine. And it will be a full display of God's glory made known through his son. That is what we do together. It isn't just something, friends, that we already have internally and visibly, and something that we work out in mission. It is something that we will one day fully and finally enjoy without limit forever, and that is to encourage our unity even here and now. Now, I would just give this warning, because there is an encouragement, but I would simply ask you, does does this prospect, does this prospect of enjoying Jesus together forever seem enjoyable to you? Or like something to endure? John Owen pointed it out well in his book, The Glories of Christ. He actually says that <laughs> the unconverted person can no better enjoy the beauty and brightness of the sun than a fish floundering in the sand on the beach. He doesn't have the capacity to enjoy the light, the air. Do you have the capacity? Has God given you that appetite where you actually want that? Now, let me be clear. Some of us know we want that. We just also know we don't want it as much as we want to want it. You know what I'm saying? Like, some of us know that that's glorious, that's amazing, that's awesome. Yes, Jesus truly is all what I want. And I mean, the stuff would be nice too, but like the sun is it. But we get so distracted by the stuff of this world that we're like, man, I want to want Jesus more. But that's a normal human instinct. I don't want you to think that if you're just like not ready to check out and go to heaven right now and behold the glories of the sun for eternity, that you're somehow unconverted. You're normal. It's okay. This is what sanctification is. Like we, we learn these things and it grows in us. But let me say this, and I say this kindly. If you have zero desire for the Son and you don't give any regard to spending eternity with Him, the only thing that motivates you about eternal life would be things and stuff and material prospects. You are probably not converted. You probably don't have spiritual life in you. And I would be concerned. So the oneness that Jesus prays for, it's essential, it's missional, it's spatial, and lastly, it's actually, believe it or not, it, it's transferable. It can be passed on. Look at verses 25 and 26. Here's the last thing he prays. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. 
There's a lot going on there. Let's break it down into three steps. The first is that this relationship has been between the Father and the Son. This is what I want you to know. The relationship between the Father and the Son has been conveyed. It's been made known. And Jesus makes it clear. He says, um, it's been made known, not to the world. The world does not know you. There's a group of people who, who, who don't see this and don't really care about it. They, they can't, they don't get it. But Jesus says, I know you, I know you, Father, and these know that you have sent me. There's a group of people who know about you because they know that I'm from you. So there's, there's two kinds of people. <laughs> there's those who know the greatness of this relationship with the Father, and then there's no, those who don't. The people who know it, they know it because of the Son. And if you're in relationship with the Son, not only is this relationship conveyed initially, but it's also ongoingly communicated. Look at the next verse. He says, I made known to them your name. Like, I'm tell, I told them what you were about. I let them know who you are. And notice this. And I will continue to make it known. So Jesus is saying the people that are in the know, like they not only know what they need to know about the Father, but they're beginning to know more and more because I'm making more and more of the Father known to them. I know that one of our men's Bible studies here at the church has been working through Hebrews chapter 1. Listen to how the author of Hebrews puts it. He says, Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Like, not only did Jesus make the Father known, like past tense, Jesus is continuing to make the Father known. You know what? The more you continue to look at Jesus, even now, the more you know the Father, the more you are enjoying relationship with Him. This is awesome. Jesus said that this would happen through the Spirit. You don't know all that you do know. You may know Him truly, but you do not know Him fully. <laughs> He's evermore making Him known. And so, here's the deal. Jesus is saying, like, this is going to happen. You're going to keep knowing more and more of the Father as you keep looking to me. That's what I'm praying for. That's what I want. That's what I desire. But he desires that to an end. He has a purpose for wanting that. He wants you to know the love of the Father for a particular reason. And is that reason, let's just ask a really obvious question, to pass a final exam? No, it's not an intellectual thing. Does he want you, let's ask another one, does he want you to know the Father so that you can copy the Father? Like you just do whatever he does. I don't think that's quite it, but it's a little closer. Let's see why he says that we should continue to know the Father through the Son. Here it is. So that the love with which you have loved them may be in them and I in them. God transfers His divine love for His Son. Like that, the most powerful love over and above the universe gets transferred into the hearts of, of those who look to know the Father more. Like, I don't even know how to describe this. I mean, like, I promise I've tried. 
But like the, the, like the Father's eternal, infinite, insurpassable, unfathomable love for His Son gets put into your tiny little heart and then begins to go out to other people. It goes in and among them. It's not just, oh yeah, you get a general piece of love. You get the Father's love for the Son, and then all of a sudden you start doing that with other people. It's transferable. <laughs> I've tried to think this through. I don't even know how this works. I'm, I'm struggling, friends. Like, because I know my love, and I don't think I don't think that my love is is, is anywhere near or, or, or very much even, at all resembles the Father's eternal love for the Son. And yet, this is what it says happens. I, as we gaze at the Father, as we know Him, as we enter deeper and deeper into relationship with Him, it actually like, imparts His love for the Son to us so that we can show it to others. Uh, recently, in the past three weeks, four weeks now, Tanya and I have been doing premarital counseling for one of our own uh, members who is preparing to go to the mission field to an, to an unreached language group. And for the sake of his future security, I'm not saying who or where, but you know him well. Many of you do. And uh, with that, I actually decided to, I'm always trying to get better at at what I do, and I decided to uh, survey some new resources for doing premarital counseling, and I came across this delightful little book that's my new go-to, entitled uh, Catching Foxes. It's a great, great name. It it comes from Song of Solomon, if you don't know why it's called that. Catching foxes, catching these things that spoil the marriage. And um, it's written by John Henderson. And I I read it in preparation for them. And no kidding, I am now going back through it every day for my own marriage. I'm like, where was this my whole life? (laughs) And one of the interesting facets, like truly, like a hole in my ministry preparation. Like I had no idea to ask this. It's like the second chapter, where he he basically says, hey, so what's the story of your family, and what stuff are you bringing into this relationship? I know for some of you, you're like, duh. Well, they didn't cover that in seminary where I was at. It was just like, here's what the Bible says. We didn't think about what we had already learned from our own families. And the idea... And I'm just reading from the book here. He says, each of us grew up in a family, and perhaps we had a father or a mother present in our home growing up. Perhaps we had siblings around. Perhaps we grew up in an orphanage or bounced from home to home without exactly feeling like we were part of any family at all. But he says, no matter what your experiences have been through your life, they're important. They do not determine you, nor do those experiences compose who you are, but they have influenced what you think and the way you feel and live. They have not caused your view of marriage, family, and life, but they have impacted it. And then you ask this question. Here's the question. Like, this is what the couple is supposed to discuss. What foxes might your family bring to your vineyard? And to this we would add, what features might your family bring to your vineyard? You know, we've been impacted. My kids were asking me the other day, like, Dad, why do you keep making us cut the grass in a diagonal? Like, I just want to cut it straight. I'm like, well, my dad always cut the grass in diagonal, and that's what he made me do. You know, I guess <laughs> it's my default. I've watched that man. I watched him for 
17 years straight. And I picked up on some stuff. And because he's a human father, some of it's good, some of it's not. What Jesus is praying for makes total sense in this case. He's like, look, here's the deal, guys. I'm praying that you would continue to be enamored with your relationship with the Father. You keep knowing Him. You keep deepening this relationship with Him. And as you do that, that same love that He just pours out in torrent with His Son, you're going to start pouring out in torrent with the people around you. You don't get it by like trying really, really hard. You don't get it by passing the right exams. You don't get it by taking a, you know, like a, a doctrinal quiz. Like you get it by like an experiential, relational knowledge of the Father as He's made Himself known through His Son, empowered by the Spirit, which normally comes through the means of His Word and other people who know His Word. And so that's the key. He's saying like, like go to the source of this love so that you can show this love. When you know it, you show it. But knowing it is not merely academic. I, um, like we need to know the Father. How do we know Him? We know Him through His Word and we know Him through the worship of His gathered church. Somebody put it this way. I like it. He says, we must know the Father through the means He's provided. Word, prayer, communion. And so if you want to enjoy and enhance unity... We need to keep looking to the Father through Jesus. Not asking what He would do, you know, like what would Jesus do, and like a raw copy and paste, but actually being enamored by what Jesus has done, by what the Father has already done through Jesus. And then this, these are the, the good lines. It says this, study the gospel. Study the gospel. You want to love like this? Study the gospel not like a seminarian studies doctrine to prepare for an exam, but the way you would study a sunset that has left you speechless, or the way a soldier longing for his fiancée studies her picture, amazement at the grace of Jesus and excitement for his return will produce a passion to go to the ends of the earth and to love the saints of God. Do you know what's going on here? <laughs> Don't, don't, don't hear this and just be like, okay, the Father loved the Son a whole lot. I need to love the Son a whole lot. That's not the way it works. It's you're enamored by the Father's love for the Son that's been made known to you through the Word of God and the people of God, and you're just continuing to be fascinated by that, and that's what's fueling that amazing love for one another. It's transferable. That's good news, friends. Because I think, I'm pretty sure I know what it's like to just try to like, you know, like squeeze my fist really hard and clench my jaw and try to make some things happen. And oddly, love doesn't work well that way, believe it or not. I'm going to love them no matter what. Come hell or high water, I'm going to love But to be captivated by love, that conveys love. I've always benefited from... Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's little book on Christian community. And I make the same caveat with him that I would with C.S. Lewis. He had some stuff dreadfully wrong. There's some things he just seemed to see with crystal clarity. One of them was relationships with people. And um, in his little book, Life Together, 
Uh, he leaves us with a caution. I'll leave you with this. this we're done. Um, I want to give you a caution about this unity, a clarification, and then a commendation. Here's the caution. And I'm, I'm just quoting Bonhoeffer here. He says, Innumerable times, a whole Christian community has broken down because it had sprung from a wish dream. The serious Christian set down for the first time in a Christian community is likely to bring with him a very definite idea of what Christian life together should be and try to realize it. But God's grace speedily shatters such dreams. Just as surely God desires to lead us to a knowledge of genuine Christian fellowship, so surely we must be overwhelmed by a great general disillusionment with others, with Christians in general, and if we're fortunate, with ourselves. Now, get what he's saying. When we all enter into the Christian community for the first time, we have these ideals of like what it's going to be like. We think we've got this thing figured out, just like a newly married person does. They can't know what they don't know. It's the wish dream. The husband has a wish dream of how this thing's going to down, go down. The wife has a wish dream. And, and what Bonhoeffer is saying is like, even when you enter into the Christian community, like you're going to have a wish dream of the way that you expect this thing to go. So he adds, Only that fellowship which faces disillusionment with all its unhappy and ugly aspects begins to be what it should be in God's sight. Begins to grasp and fate the promises that are given to it. The sooner this shock of disillusionment comes to an individual and to a community, the better for them both. So here's the second thing he warns. You have your wish dream, you have this bubble, and it will burst. And you're like, this, it shouldn't be this way. This, this is not what I wish for. This is not what I was hoping for. And he says, now you're at the point to see the depth of real Christian fellowship. Only when your idol dies can you actually enter into the experience of what God himself has planned for you. Only when you're disenchanted with what you thought the way the thing should look like can you actually begin to enjoy what God thinks. And again, I get back to the marriage. The husband has very concrete expectations of how that relationship to work. The, the, the wife has very concrete expectations. And then they realize, oh, this is a hot mess. I don't know if we're going to make it. And now they can actually get to not what the world has informed them or what their hearts have informed them, but what the Word of God says a marriage should be and start truly loving one another to get to that 60-year satisfaction that we were talking about earlier. It's the best place to be. That first big argument, like that's the one. Because now we've got to say, well, what does the Word say? Friends, be careful. That, don't think that you're like, somehow missing out on, on the Christian experience because like, it's not as close as you want it to be. Look, we're sinners, and we struggle. But we have something that is real. Here's the last one that I'll, I'll read for us. He says, Because God has already laid the only foundation of our fellowship, because God has bound us together in one body with other Christians in Jesus Christ, long before we entered into common life with them, we enter into that common life not as demanders, but as thankful recipients. We thank God for what He has done for us. We thank God for giving us brethren who live by His call, by His forgiveness, by His promise. 
Christian brotherhood is not an ideal which we must realize. It is rather a reality created by God and Christ in which we may participate. Friends, I get it. It is not. It is not what it could be. But it is something better than a world that would only cooperate with you because of what you can get them, because of the things, material things that you can acquire together, because of that general interest in just saying like, okay, you help me do this, I'll help you do that, you scratch my back, I scratch yours. Like, There is something better, there is something deeper that we already enjoy. Be careful, friends, about idolizing a certain experience. When the disillusionment happens, I would encourage you, I would warn you to look to the Word to see where that community should indeed be found. Like, well, align it with these attributes, not whatever you think it should be. I give also a clarification. We asked the question last week about one holy Catholic church. What does that mean? One holy universal church. Are we really one? Maybe one of the biggest questions that come from that, not necessarily from this congregation, but from the outside, is if we're all one, why are there so many different denominations? That's what Rome always warned would happen. That there would be just this infinite number of people splitting off if they ever broke off from Rome. And I don't know, I think at last count, there's somewhere close to 10,000 different denominations of some kind, people, labels that people use to call themselves a Christian of some kind. That's a lot. Is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? Like, did Jesus' prayer fail? I think we need to understand that the unity that Jesus prays for is invisible and spiritual, not institutional. Therefore, when people organize themselves around other institutions, those are just human entities. That's not Jesus' entity. The denomination Baptist or the denomination Methodist, for example, are are human inventions. But they're not bad inventions. Let let me explain why. (laughs) Denominational organization is actually a beautiful thing because it facilitates our joint mission toward the things that matter while preserving our conscience on the things that don't matter as much. Can I give an example? Take Presbyterians and Baptists for a second. They disagree on something that we both would consider important, and that is baptism. Evangelical Presbyterians would baptize babies, not to give them spiritual life, but just to mark them as potential members of the covenant family and to say we're going to, basically, the old school Baptist child dedication. That's what it is. We're going to raise our kids in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Sprinkle the baby. But Baptists would say, absolutely not. This is a sign that for those that are born again. Now, here's the deal. Both people agree on the revelation of the Father, the redemption of the Son, and the regeneration of the Spirit. Those essentials that we talked about last week, total agreement. And both people are living out that mission, and they want to see other people come to know it. But here's the deal. They need to do that in churches, and they can't. When one person thinks that it would be sin to baptize a baby and another person thinks it would be sin not to. So what do they do? They organize into different denominations and then they follow the advice that J.C. Ryle gave us, build low fences and shake hands often. We still have the same source of life. Revelation of the Father, redemption by the Son, 
regeneration of the Spirit, we still have the same goal, making Jesus known to the lost, making disciples, maturing disciples, multiplying disciples. We're just running in different lanes because our conscience doesn't allow us to do institutional church together, and that's okay. There's Episcopal churches. There's Baptist congregational churches. There's Presbyterian churches. And guess what? Every one of those can have people in them who love Jesus on the basis of the things that we've said and long to see his mission accomplished, and we're all working together, shaking hands as much as we can. It's not a bad thing. And can I give you one more just kind of clarification? Unity, unity is centered in Jesus, not in our every interpretation of what we think Jesus would do. So not only are denominations a good thing, but guess what? Different consciences are. This is what Mitch Buell tells classes about. Sometimes we're going to come to really big disagreements on things about how we educate our children or how we treat the government. Or, I mean, and guess what? On those particular issues, like we can fight and argue in a helpful way for clarity, but we recognize, hey, this doesn't give me life, nor will it give anybody else eternal life, so I can agree to disagree with somebody who doesn't land on every issue the same way that I do. We can still worship together. And it's a good thing. It's a good thing. If you want to know more about that, go to Mitch's class. Last thing. Can I commend something to you just very practically as we conclude? We already have this, this unity, and we do agree. I mean, like, I know you could think all day long about a thousand things that you disagree with someone over, but do you understand how crazy strange it is that so many people would agree that God the Father has revealed himself through his Son who has sacrificed himself and risen again from the dead and is ruling and reigning and will soon return and the Spirit enables other people to enter into that relationship. Like, that's crazy talk, friends. Put that in the op-ed piece and tell me what kind of responses you get. For all those 10,000 denominations that everybody's concerned about, that's almost 10,000 people who would agree on that. I mean, 10,000 entities that would agree on that. Anywhere between a billion to two billion people. And I don't know. Maybe some of them are deceived. Maybe some of them aren't genuinely born again. I get it. But there's a lot more people already in this divine life than you could ever imagine. And so I commend you to enjoy that with them in whatever opportunity it presents itself. May we pardon my little Justinism here, geek out on the things that really matter. I can nuance. I love a good debate just like anybody else. But like, let's make that the appetizer or the dessert, not the main course. We enjoy together the revelation of the Father, the redemption of the Son, the regeneration of the Spirit. And can I just offer one more commendation? Not only should you geek out and enjoy this core of Christian doctrine that makes us who we are, I think you should also um, embrace the signs that Jesus has given of belonging. You know what the two signs are that he gave to like mark people off? Baptism and communion. Every organization has a belonging cue. They've got some kind of like secret handshake, some kind of 
some kind of way that they do things to let people know, yeah, this person's on the inside. Uh, it's easy for us to start setting up our own belonging cues. Like, hey, friends, don't worry. You don't have to be creative. Jesus already gave us one. <laughs> and if someone is communing with you at this church, someone has been baptized into this fellowship, like, like go all in on that. Like, these are who we're identifying as, as family, people that we want to love and care for. We want to do the same for all those who also have entered into those same signs on the basis of the gospel. A caution, a clarification, a commendation. It's a huge topic. But here's the deal. We rest on this. Jesus has already prayed for it. You may not have it all figured out, but he's doing it whether you get it or not. For some of you, that may be entering into it by faith today turning from your sin, trusting in Jesus. For many of you, that's already done. Now enjoy it and enhance it through continuing to follow after the mission Jesus has given us. Let's pray and then we'll sing a closing song of praise all to the glory of Christ and His people. Father, it is amazing that You've called us into something so high, so holy as the love relationship of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Not through any efforts of our own, but through what Christ has accomplished, through even faith that is enabled by the Spirit, we praise You today. And we pray, just like Jesus does, that we would continue to live this out in real ways that would make Your name known to the world. Strengthen our fellowship around the things that matter. Soften our hearts on those things that don't. Um, supply everyone here with not only the, the knowledge of this, but the experience of this oneness that we already have in Jesus. And through it, we trust that Christ will be glorified in His united people. And it's in His name we pray. Amen.